What makes immigration so politically contentious? Congress struggles with policy. The president is under pressure. Governors are defiant. This is Interfaith Encounters, and we are reprising our Series 3 on Migration and Immigration. In this episode, we visit with Anwar Khan, President of Islamic Relief USA. Welcome, Mr. Khan. Uh, thank you for having me, Dr. Khan. So, Mr. Khan, my first question is this. How does your faith tradition understand our responsibility to migrants and immigrants? We don't have the word refugee in Islam. We have the word wayfarer or traveler. Refugee is a modern-day term that's used. If you leave your home and you're forced out of your home and you have to move for persecution or oppression, you are not called a refugee unless you cross an international border. You're called an internally displaced person. So if you're fleeing ethnic cleansing and you move from one city to another and you've lost everything, the international institutions like the UN don't have a responsibility to protect you until you cross an international border. In Islam, we're saying that if you're oppressed and you flee, then you have guaranteed rights. And those are God-given rights. So in a true Islamic state, not the ones that we're hearing about on the news and these guys with guns, in a true Islamic state, anyone that comes, the Islamic state has a responsibility to protect them. That is not what the UN Declaration of Human Rights says. It says that when you flee and you cross a border, then that um, the government you go to has to give you due process to consider your application. And by the way, there's no country with a Muslim majority in the world that is applying by this <laughs> rule that I just told you. So in the same way, the Bible says beautiful things about strangers, but that doesn't mean majority Christian nations are abiding by it. The same way the Quran and the sayings of the Prophet, um, Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, say beautiful things, but that doesn't necessarily mean, and in this case, no state is actually applying that. So when someone comes and says, I'm fleeing oppression, it is their right that someone, that the state takes them in. So I would say that um, we can argue about the logistics, how many and stuff like that, but from an, um, in modern day sense, but you asked me the question about my faith, my faith is very clear that um, I have my rights, but I have my obligations. And I know you believe this in Christianity, that it's not just our rights, but it's our obligations. And so it's God-given that we have to help. And this is not a theoretical or just a philosophical point for me. My father fled ethnic cleansing because he was Muslim. In India, he went to Pakistan. Members of our family didn't make that journey. Then my father migrated to UK, which you may be able to tell by the accent is where I grew up. And then I chose to migrate and I came to America. So I'm a migrant and a child of refugees. So let me just uh, highlight something you've said, because I think it's very important, which is that the Islamic obligation 
towards migrants, immigrants, refugees, is based on one, this, this word, a wayfarer, a person who's moving from one place to another. And so it is not limited to people who cross international borders. There are obligations for people who just are picked up and displaced regardless. And therefore, some of these obligations need to be taken up in, use, use the term an Islamic state, or at least a state that has any pretense of Islamic ideals, will care for these people who move internally. And I, I just want to highlight that that's something that's useful for everybody to think about, because we have a lot of internal migration within the U.S. for many of the same reasons. It may not be ethnic cleansing. It may be uh, poverty. Um, it, it may actually be fleeing from different forms of oppression. And you're saying, if I get you right, that the, the state, or at least people who are committed to these ideals, will care for these internal migrants as well. Is that right? Absolutely, of all faiths, of all backgrounds. And I love what you said, people who are interested in these ideals. So I want to be clear that what we see, what we see in the Bible is not necessarily what we see acting in um, the government of Christian-majority countries. It's the same with Islam as well. So I'm saying that if we are saying from a religious point of view that it is our obligation to help. Yeah. So let me ask a question that's uh, not on the original list, but has to do with your own personal background um, a bit and your work with Islamic Relief USA. Your family has migrated over a period of two generations three times. Okay, so obviously migrants and migration are very much part of your way of thinking. I'll add the same is true of my family on my wife's side. You're now involved in a relief organization here in the U.S. How do you see the work of Islamic relief relating then to this, um, these patterns of both border crossing migration and in relationship to internal movements of people? Thank you for asking that, Dr. Hunt. Initially, when Islamic Relief was set up, it was set up by students at the University of Birmingham in the United Kingdom in 1984. And that was because of the crisis in Africa. Some of us may remember the horrific scenes we saw coming out of Ethiopia. Um, there was a horrific famine. So initially, the focus was international work in relief. Then it grew to being sustainable development. We came to America, I, I was one of the founders, co-founders of Islamic Relief USA when I came to America in 1993. I was um, 22 at the time. So it was young people that helped start Islamic Relief USA. And we realized, Dr. Hunt, that it's not just enough to help people overseas. At that time, it was Bosnia. It was um, a horrific crisis. We have poverty in America. Yeah. Right here. So we started doing more and more programs in um, America. And then we realized, wait a minute. Yes, we have an Islamic obligation to help our Muslim brothers and sisters overseas. But we have an Islamic obligation to help everybody overseas. And wait a minute, we have an obligation to help our neighbors. So from a theological point of view, we have to help everyone everywhere. And... Obviously, that's a huge mission statement. So you can't do everything. So the areas that we're focusing in the U.S. is on health care, is on um, refugees, yeah. and food assistance. And something I'm very proud of, Dr. Han, in the last few years is community building. Ah, oh, okay. Yeah. 
how do we bring communities together? One project I'm really proud of that we did is we funded a project a couple of years ago with the Catholic Charities to help the um, children that were being stuck on the border and separated from their families. So we funded that project. So we have worked with our Christian brothers and sisters on that project. We thought if we sent Muslims over there, it would pose more questions. <laughs> we, we're not helping. We have to understand that when someone like me comes with my name and the way that I look, I think I look okay, but some people seem to think that I look dangerous, whatever that means, yeah? That I'm not helping the children on the border. Then they're going to say, oh, they're becoming terrorists and nonsense like this. So it's better that we step back and someone that looks like you with your accent comes and helps. So in Islamic Relief, we've been working with other organizations on the border. We've been helping refugees that come. And I want to be clear, when we're helping refugees, we are not here just to help Muslim refugees. Now, the, in the last few years, the majority of refugees coming into America, just over 52% through the refugee program, happen to be Muslim. That's because a large number of refugees in the world are Muslim. So there's a lot of conflict in Muslim-majority countries. This is historical. I believe it's left over from the empires. And we're still dealing with some of these um, problems. But our refugee work, I want to be clear, is to help people of all backgrounds. And we've also done work with refugees in um, Greece. You're going to love this. With Hebrew Immigration Aid Service. So with our Jewish brothers and sisters, they worked with uh, um, lawyers who are majority Christian and helping people who are majority Muslim, but not necessarily. Isn't that a beautiful Abrahamic um, program? So we like to do refugee work, and you might be surprised, we're also working with our friends in highest to help refugees that um, left Venezuela. And as you know, those are not Muslim refugees. So we are helping in America, we're helping overseas, we're trying to do it with interfaith. We try to set up our own um, volunteer program, similar to what our Christian and Jewish friends did with OLAG. But as you can imagine, the political circumstances after 2016 were not really um, kind to us or to any of the OLAGs. So what we decided to do is, after the refugees come to America, and the government helps them for a limited time period with these non-profits, and I think at least half are Christian, majority are faith-based. Then after that, they're on their own. We come and help them after that. So after they have fulfilled the six months, one year, um, and, and they no longer receive government assistance, we try to help them. And we try to, we've tried more and more to do that in coordination with the existing Volaks um, to continue the work that they're doing. So when um, in the last administration, the number of refugees drastically reduced, that had no effect on our income because we get no income from helping them. So the way that we fund this is through our general donation fund. And more and more now we're helping in the US. And many of these um, people who are um, refugees, we're helping them with food aid. But I wanna be clear, we're also working in rural white America with food aid because yeah. there's a lot of poverty in America and it's not limited to just refugees, but we know that they are an at-risk population as there are others, such as with child malnutrition in rural um, areas. Yeah. 
So I, just to highlight a couple of things then that, that you've said, one is, you know, you've stressed that the, this Islamic obligation is to all people. You've also stressed that you work with other religious organizations, including Jews and Christians. My assumption then is that in, in Islamic teaching, the doing of these kinds of good works crosses over from just one community, the Muslim community, that there are going to be people of good faith and goodwill in other religious communities that you can work with. Absolutely. This is an example of the time of the Prophet Muhammad. It's called the Alliance for Virtue. Alliance for Virtue, uh, yeah. Alliance for Virtue is, I know it sounds really pompous in English, but that's the translation from Arabic to English. And the idea was that if somebody is facing oppression, you can help them. So the Prophet Muhammad told her, um, before he became the Prophet of Islam, before he officially um, became that, he was helping with other um, tribes weaker tribes that were being oppressed. Now, some of my more conservative friends then come and say, yes, but he wasn't Muslim at the time. I said, can I finish the story? Because then the Prophet Muhammad said, and he swore by God, if I could do the same thing now, I would do the same thing, which is that we work together of people of different backgrounds to help the oppressed. In a real sense, this comes in my understanding from the Islamic understanding that God's law, desire, ethical standards are really universal and have been universally revealed. Um, so Islam doesn't claim an exclusive knowledge of what it means to be the right kind of person. Dr. Han, a lot of what we're saying refers to the Bible and the Torah. We claim in Islam that we have the heritage from your faith. And from Judaism. So we're, we're claiming that we are part of you. Some Christians say, no, you're not. But from our side, um, and I'm asking you a question, Dr. Hunt. You've dealt with Muslims for years, yeah? yes? Yeah. How many times have you heard Muslims saying bad things about Jesus? Yeah, well, never, of course. <laughs> can't. We can't. We're not allowed. We revere Jesus. Now, we believe he was an amazing prophet. We don't believe he was the son of God. So there's a disagreement. I want to be fair. But... It is, uh, you cannot be a Muslim and attack Jesus. These are the craziest, the worst Muslims you'll find will not say anything about Jesus. But you know that's not reciprocated on the other side. So it doesn't matter to us. If people say horrible things about the Prophet Muhammad, we just have to be patient about it. But we cannot say anything against um, Jesus because we revere Jesus ourselves. Or for that matter, Moses, of course. Or Yeah, any of the prophets. The prophets of God, the messengers of God, the angels of God, we have to respect all of them. So let me, let me come back to something. Uh, part of what you're saying is that welcoming migrants that are coming into the community is a big part of this work, and that you're, you're doing it um, in cooperation with other religious groups, just to highlight the fact that one of the special things that Islamic Relief does is it tries to pick up where government funding drops off after they've come for a year, right? And this, so you raise money for this. Let me just ask, um, you work with religious groups. I'm curious about how Islamic Relief works particularly, and, and this does focus in on Muslim 
migration with local mosques is there a is there a synergy or a working together between religious local religious bodies like mosques and and the work of islamic relief in welcoming the migrants yeah that's very interesting what you're asking because i think there's a difference in structure between the christian churches and the mosque in america okay so Sometimes my Christian friends, who are beautiful people trying to do interfaith work, say, you know what we call nobody answers that call back from the mosque. The reason for that is, and I explained this to them, is the mosques are not as well-staffed and don't have the established history that the churches do. So often it's a volunteer who comes in on Friday, Sunday, checking the phone, and they don't have full-time staff. So we don't have the same organized structure in our medium to small mosques. Now, our larger mosques do. So our larger mosques will have a full-time person answering the phone, um, will be professional in that. But we are still, remember when Islam initially came to America, it came on slave ships 400 years ago. They were forcibly converted. Then Islam came in smaller numbers. And actually, even before that, It came before the slave ships. Some of them came as slaves with um, about the time of Columbus. They were um, f- from Spain, from Muslim origin. But I'm saying that in the 20th, in the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, Muslims were coming from the Levant. So a lot of those were um, Arabs who were Christian majority, but there were some Muslims as well that came. Then Islam came in different ways in the 20th century over here. But as far as mosques are concerned, the oldest mosque I think is in Iowa, if my memory says me right, and it's about, which you wouldn't expect, it's about 100 years old. But our mosques now are really growing as our community has. So we really are very pleased with religious freedom in America, and we believe there should be religious freedom everywhere. We benefited from it. We benefited from it. So we believe in that. However, When it comes to our mosque, our mosques are predominantly places where you worship. And we don't believe that they, the mosque should be in charge of charity work. So we have um, many Muslim-led non-profits who are doing the bulk of this work. So the mosque is like, guys, I've got enough problem dealing with people threatening to blow us up, threatening to come to attack us. I'm not joking. In my Dr. Hunt, in my local mosque, as of the last two years, when I walked in, when I was able to walk in, I would have to walk past security guards with guns. When I came to America in 1994, that wasn't the case. But when I go to more and more um, synagogues, more and more mosques now, I'm seeing this. So the, the mosques are focused on too many things. So within the Muslim community, we now have nonprofits that specialize in helping refugees and others that specialize in helping people in need. So we have a network of about 240 partners in America. And you're going to love this. 40 of them are not Muslim. Those are our Christian Jewish friends that we work with. So 20% of our partners are from different faith or no faith. 80% of our partners are from the Muslim faith. 35% are African-American led and about one third are women led. So these are the ones that are doing the bulk of the work uh, with refugees. And we're doing capacity building for these organizations. So they won't have the name Islamic Relief. So we don't work with refugees under the name Islamic Relief. 
we work with under 240 different names. Okay? And our aim is to scale them up, give them some money, but um, help them to get sustainability, to do capacity building, which may give them advice how to raise funds. Um, we, we're also working with them how to talk to the local congressman. Congress people. And I remember talking to one lady. She was Christian, African-American from Texas. And she said, you know, before you guys came, I never thought it was an option to speak to my congressman. So we arranged for her, worked with her to speak to the congressman um, about um, hunger issues. So I would say that um, we aren't working directly with mass. We are, however, working with um, uh, Muslim nonprofit 501c3s that specialize on either refugee work or anti-hunger work or anti-poverty work. Well, I think that's a really helpful reminder that as different, many different religious groups have migrated into the United States, each has had to find its own way of organizing to fulfill its, both to care for its people and to, to fulfill its ethical mandate. Um, we, churches were almost automatically community centers at a time when almost every community was entirely Christian. But obviously, Muslims moving in, that's not the first thing. And I would guess, in fact, I'm not even guessing, I think I know this, that part of this has to do with the way in which um, Islamic charity work was organized even from the time of the Prophet onward. The mosque was a simply a different kind of organization than a church. Is that yeah. Yeah. right? Yeah. So let me ask one final question, then we'll kind of wrap this up because this has been fascinating. But I would love it if you could tell me one particular project that you, Islamic Relief has been doing, whether it's in capacity building or jointly with another uh, group, that you think is really exemplary of fulfilling the Islamic ideal towards migrants um, and immigrants, or in the in the in the the language of Islam, the wayfarer um, who is in need. Can you tell me one particular project that would be exciting for you? The one is the one I referenced earlier, which was working with the Catholic charities, financially supporting them, because. Dr. Hunt, you know that these are some of the most at-risk people in America. You're a minor, you're unaccompanied, you're scared. So this was something that was politically sensitive. If you've noticed, I haven't made any political statement. That's not what I do. But unfortunately, helping hungry children has become political in this country. So I'm not saying I'm with one party or the other, but look, let's be honest. If Jesus came to America, you know what they would be saying about him. He'd be very political, the way that he was feeding the poor, the, the way he was helping the stranger. You know what Jesus would do. We all know what Jesus would do. So I would say that um, that project with Catholic Charities, because it was so um, how can, heartbreaking, and we knew that by us being there may not help the situation. So we had to constrain ourselves, knowing that, and we had to control our ego and say, you know what? We know that we're not 
going to be welcome there. So we know that we're going to work with our friends who are welcome there to do that uh, project. And the other one, if I can, it's um, with uh, Jewish friends that I mentioned in Lesbos, Greece, where we are helping to make sure that these undocumented uh, people that when they arrive in Lesbos, they get proper documents from the UN, from international organizations. And we're fighting, um, I like to say that we're fighting people's hate with love. So we don't need to work with our Christian Jewish friends, but I believe that if we do it, it will please God when we come together. Thank you very much. I think that's a great way to end, that this working together will please God. I want to thank you for giving the time for the interview and um, look forward to uh, having it up on the podcast so people can see it. Um, and um, I hope that you'll also thank your assistant for arranging everything on my behalf. Thank you so much, Dr. Hunt. And may God bless you with the wonderful work you're doing. This is God's work. This has been Interfaith Encounters. I am Dr. Robert Hunt. I have been speaking with Anwar Khan, head of Islamic Relief USA.